Well, good morning, everybody. This, uh, this is Bill Evans, Westpac's Chief Economist. And I'd like to speak today about the, our latest market outlook that was published on Friday. And in today's chat, I will speak for about 10 minutes on the on some of the, the key themes that were raised at the publication. And then I'll ask uh, Matt Hassan, Andrew Hanlon, Justin Smirk and Elliot Clark uh, to speak about some particular issues that they've also contributed to in the document. So let me let me start by giving you an overview of some of the key facts that came out of our market outlook report. So since the last market market outlook in June, we've made some um, significant changes to our interest rate and monetary policy forecasts. Following the May employment report, where we saw that the unemployment rate had fallen from 5.5 to 5.1, and on that same day, we'd seen a lift in forecasts from the US Federal, Federal Open Market Committee and a more hawkish tone from the chairman. Uh, we thought they were game changers. And as a result, uh, we changed our forecast for the labor market and the unemployment rate, and also brought forward uh, our forecast for the beginning of the Fed tightening cycle to December 2022. Elliot Clark will speak in more detail about those changes uh, later in the session. So with our improved unemployment forecast, where we have the unemployment rate down to uh, 4% by June 2022, uh, that's indicated to us that the conditions that the Reserve Bank will require to tighten policy uh, will, will have been established by the end of 2022. That'll be a sustained period at full employment, and we had defined full employment as 4%, and we think that by the end of 2022, it'll actually be a touch below that 4%. Inflation will be in the uh, 2 to 3% band. And the momentum in the labour market will indicate that wages growth uh, to reach the 3% target that the Reserve Bank uh, requires, uh, that wages growth will be very much on track to achieve that. We don't think that you have to be at 3% on wages growth to, to trigger the monetary tightening. We think the conditions around inflation and the labour market are the key for that particular action to occur. The second question will be how far does this cycle run for and what is the peak in the rate? So we've got them tightening to 25 basis points in that March quarter 2022, so I'm sorry, 2023. And we think the cycle will last as is typically of um, tightening cycles, much a shorter cycle than the easing cycles. We think it'll last until the second half of 2024 when the cash rate will peak at five and a, at one and a quarter percent. Now that sounds very low, but based upon the key factor that we think will signal that the Reserve Bank has reached a comfortable neutral level there uh, will be the debt servicing ratio of the household sector. And by that time, we think that debt servicing ratio will have reached that peak that we saw in 2009 when the Reserve Bank uh, uh, finished its previous tightening cycle, and also a peak we saw in 2018 
when certain fixed rates were increased and uh, debt had increased rapidly in response to rising uh, house prices. For the Federal Reserve, we think their peak will be 1.625, higher than ours, but also consistent with a neutral setting. We don't expect to see a big overshoot in inflation that would require the central bank either in Australia or in the US to move into uh, contractionary territory. Those lower than expected peaks in both the federal, federal funds rate and the uh, RBA cash rate are consistent with lower bond rates than we had expected before. So expecting both US and Australian bond rates to peak at around 2.3% halfway through those tightening cycles. And indeed, by the time the tightening cycle has ended, those bond rates will have uh, moderated down to around 2.1%. The second big development that we saw last week from the Reserve Bank was around their quantitative easing policy. So we were the first in the market to predict that the Reserve Bank would move to a flexible target on quantitative easing rather than setting a volume target. And we said that target would be $5 billion a week and it would be reviewed in the December board meeting. So we were a little surprised that the Reserve Bank certainly did adopt a flexible approach, but they said that uh, when the new target was going to be adopted at the beginning of September, it would be $4 billion rather than $5 billion. So that is a clear tapering in policy. We expect that as a result of, our, of, of us seeing that the Reserve Bank will achieve their uh, conditions earlier than we had thought before, we think the total program will be uh, lower than the $150 billion we expected before, uh, down to $100 billion. We're expecting that profile to be $4 billion uh, from November until the board meeting in February, when it will be revised down to $3 billion and down to $2 billion. Uh, sorry, it'll be revised down to $3 billion at the November board meeting and then $2 billion at the February board meeting, totaling around $100 billion in total. We have retained our view on the Australian dollar that we expected to reach 80 cents by the end of end of this year, even though it has been stalling around that 75 cents for some time, uh, we still remain confident about the global economic outlook. We remain very confident that uh, as vaccines become more widely distributed around the world, global growth story will remain strong and the and the acceptance of risk on that will support the Aussie dollar will start to uh, build again once we start to see the wide distribution of vaccines, particularly in the developed world. So while the, uh, the, the commodity story remains um, uh, solid, uh, we're expecting that the Australian dollar will resume its upward trend in the second half of this year. Justin Smirk will speak in more detail around our commodity views uh, later in this session. Finally, let me make some broad comments about the recent developments in, uh, in Sydney with regard to the lockdowns. My view is that the lockdowns will have a positive effect in general, in the sense that vaccine hesitancy, vaccine complacency will be out the window. 
uh, we'll start to see a massive embrace of vaccines, both in Sydney and in the rest of the country, when that vaccine supply comes on track. So the fact that we've only got 10% of the population uh, are vaccinated at this point with two jabs uh, will change rapidly over the course of the end of this year and into next year. And I think that the lockdown we're seeing now will be a really big wake up call, not only for New South Wales, but for the whole of the country. We also have to remember that the economy went into this, uh, the Sydney economy went into the lockdown with strong momentum. And what we've seen, and Matt Hassan will talk about this, what we've seen with previous lockdowns is that recoveries are very rapid once the lockdown is completed. Uh, finally, let me say that the government is providing financial support in this lockdown. And what we've seen in the past is that, that financial support can often build into an increase in savings uh, and that accumulated level of savings can be put to work very rapidly when the lockdowns are eased. So while we'll see some weakness in the New South Wales economy, of course, over the next few weeks, uh, my view is that we shouldn't be considering changing our overall growth story and momentum story as a result of this lockdown. So let me now uh, uh, ask Matt Hassan uh, to make a few comments. And, and Matt, you're doing some great work with regard to our weekly carb tracker that gives us very, very timely indicator of spending activity. I'd like to know what it's showing at the moment. Well, uh, it's been very interesting uh, so far. As you say, a card tracker report is the, the first uh, data we get around uh, real spending. Um, it's based on the, the millions of credit and debit card transactions that Westpac processes uh, every day. Uh, and it gives us uh, updates uh, weekly. So for example, you know, the official data around retail sales uh, for the month of July, so we won't capture the, the Sydney lockdown impact for another six and a half weeks. We already have uh, readings from the first week of uh, hard lockdown with week two due out in a couple of days. Uh, and so far what we're seeing is, is very surprising in terms of the degree of resilience. Uh, the, the benchmark index nationally uh, actually rose 1.4 points in the first week of July uh, at 104.5. Uh, it's pointing to uh, annual uh, card growth, uh, card activity, uh, transaction activity running uh, four and a half percentage points above the pre-COVID benchmark pace. Um, now, some of that was due to the reopening that we saw in Melbourne. Uh, so Victoria, uh, the index there was up nearly four points. Uh, and Queensland was also up 1.4 points. We saw a mini lockdown uh, come off uh, in, in Brisbane there as a bit of a support. But even in New South Wales, at the epicenter of, of the latest outbreak, the New South Wales index was only down 0.3 of a percentage point. Um, now, now, some of that's due to this familiar pattern we see uh, leading into lockdowns where we get some uh, stockpiling activity uh, leading in, so food uh, and basics, you know, those are off about four percentage points in the week. And when we look at the segments that get hardest hit by lockdowns, uh, the sectors like hospitality were down 20 percentage points. But what was interesting is, is that outside of those two, uh, we saw strength. So sectors such as household goods, uh, and some of those that were uh, perhaps uh, you know 
supported by the, the, the slightly lighter restrictions that we saw uh, we've seen in New South Wales compared to Victoria in June, for example. Uh, we also we saw decent gains. So, uh, you know, that that may be a, a negative in the sense that the activity in those retail sectors may be contributing to the outbreak, um, you know, moving more more through the community. But uh, for the for the first week at least, it was a support for for retail or for, for spending more generally. Uh, the next few updates obviously going to be really crucial. Uh, that's when some of these offsetting gains in other states will roll out of the picture uh, and uh, some of that stockpiling will roll out of the picture and, and we've also seen a, a further tightening in New South Wales. But so far it looks to have held, be held up uh, better than uh, actually better than previous mini lockdowns. And Matt, what's the tracker telling us about this year's lockdown measures compared to last year? Well, in, in general, it is showing quite a different picture. So the, the mini lockdowns that we've seen across the states this year uh, have had a much milder impact. Usually we see about a 10-point fall uh, as it hits uh, week to week. Uh, it hits the affected state, so that's just within the, the headline index is national, just the state index will get hit by 10 points. And then we get a, a, an immediate rebound in the following week. Uh, Victoria's June measures last a little bit longer. So we saw a similar profile, but extended over two weeks, and then with a quick rebound. If you compare that to last year, the second wave lockdown in Victoria uh, had about a 10 point hit on, on Victoria's index, but it lasted two months. Uh, before we started to see a recovery. Uh, and when we go back to the national lockdown uh, you know, way back in uh, April last year, it was a 20-point hit that lasted for six weeks, a much deeper shock. And there's a few things that are going on here. Obviously, there's some sectors that haven't reopened. Uh, so you're not going to get the same second shock to a sector like outbound tourism, for example, uh, from a second lockdown. Uh, but I think also you know, that shock, particularly in, in April last year, the, the shock to, to sentiment was much larger. We were going into a very unknown uh, environment. It was a, a very unclear uh, whether how effective lockdowns would be and how much of a health emergency we're facing into. But I think also in the mix here, there is clearly some adaptation going on. Uh, what's interesting is that this year's lockdowns, uh, when we look state by state, we have measures of mobility that show uh, that people did stop moving around in a similar way uh, to the lockdowns that we saw in 2020, uh, yet they've been managed to maintain their spending uh, you know, better than they did in 2020. We've still seen contractions, but they haven't been nearly as sharp. So clearly consumers are, have been able to adapt to, uh, to restrictions on movement. They've become more efficient with their movements in terms of shopping. Uh, they've moved to online uh, channels as well. So uh, all in all, it does suggest that you know, the, the measures that we've seen, while they're still very unsettling, uh, and there is a question mark around the Sydney lockdown, they haven't been quite as damaging as the ones we saw in 2020. Thanks, Matt. Andrew Hanlon. Um, Andrew, you've been doing quite a lot of work on the state budgets. We obviously do a lot of work on the federal budget, but state, state budgets are also really important for uh, the profile for the economy. So how have the states responded to the better than expected performance of the economy? Yeah, thank you, Bill. Um, hello all. So yeah, certainly um, there are a couple of key takeouts from the most recent round of annual state budgets. Firstly, that um, as we know, the economy has surprised to the upside. And so, you know, if we look at the aggregate uh, budget deficit across all the states, it's come in much lower for 2021 than they were expecting. So they're looking at a deficit of 100 billion. Uh, that was only way back as uh, recently as October. The number's going to be closer to 70 billion or 71 billion. So about a 30 billion dollar improvement, 30% improvement uh, because of that upside surprise in the economy. 
So the state government's going to face a choice, you know, will I let that improvement flow through to the bottom line in the out years, or will I spend some of that money? And just as we saw at the federal level, they've decided to keep the money flowing. So even though the economy is certainly doing better than expected, they've judged that it was appropriate to provide some more support. Previously, they were looking for the, the deficit to narrow sharply between two years from 100 billion down to 72.5 billion. Now we're actually looking for the deficit to increase from about 71 billion to 77. So keeping the money flowing, um, the state government's uh, seeing that there's still some need for some support. Obviously, until we get those uh, vaccine rollout more complete, that's probably appropriate use of fiscal policy. And Andrew, what's the profile for state debt has shifted as a result of these economic surprises and the impact of new policy? Yeah, so even with that active decision to provide ongoing stimulus in the 21-22 year, we see a shifting down right across the years of the debt profile. So no doubt the debt's increased as a share of GDP from where we were prior to the crisis. So we were at 10.8% of GDP net debt for all the states in 1920. Um, they were looking for debt to rise to 320 billion in 2021. That's going to come in around 284, so a lot lower. And the following year, they're expecting 387. Now it's at 353. So even with that increased spending, the debt for 21-22 is lower than they expected. And it's a share of GDP to 15.8. So some, some deterioration from 10.8 um, prior to the crisis, but certainly uh, quite manageable at this stage. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Andrew. Justin Smirk. Justin, you've written yep. extensively in the outlook on commodity prices. Yep. I spoke earlier on that we're still optimistic about the Australian dollar and the commodity price story is an important factor there. What's been happening with commodity prices recently? Well, Bill, they've been going through a extend, continuing long, strong rally. So our Westpac Export Price Index, um, it rose 5.3% through June. Um, backing that up is the ongoing story we've all been talking about, that strong rise in iron ore prices, which were up around 8% a month to now over $200 a tonne at 219 um, But the biggest story change was the change that's gone on with coal. Um, thermal coal lifted. Um, 14% or 14.2% to $127. It was $70 a tonne not too much longer, not too far ago. And Metcoal has it's gone up 17% in the month um, to be now $171 a tonne. That some some grades of Metcoal were under $90 a tonne like just very recently. Um, Brent prices, along with what's been happening with the OPEC Plus, how they've been um, haven't come to an agreement to lift production. Um, that continued to rise through the month, as did LNG prices. So we're all up, even though we've been seeing sort of some softer base metal prices, some softer eggs, and even gold fell almost 6% in the month because of the ongoing US dollar rise. The story one there has been ongoing strength. Now driving that has been, of course, the ongoing story around supply disruptions. Um, Australian iron ore exports are down around 10%, um, uh, down around 6% in the three in the first three months of this year, um, or the first last three months. Um, also been seeing disruptions going on from what we thought was going to be a recovery coming through from the earlier weather disruptions. And of course, these robust prices really incentivizing miners, but Rio Tinto has been out there saying they're having problems with labor, uh, weather disruptions are still weather disruptions are still there with their maintenance program. So all up, iron ore exports have been really significantly disappointing here coming out of Australia. And for coal, um, we've still been seeing some maintenance disruptions coming out of Newcastle. That's been holding back coal exports of thermal. And 
also in Newcastle, in Queensland, we've seen the Moorabbin mine, um, the North Moorabbin North mine, which is a met coal mine that has actually been closed um, and it's not slated to be reopening until you know, mid this month. So all up, we've been seeing quite a weak trend in coal exports, which are down 5% uh, in the year to June. And that's really been holding, helping to hold support prices. Also for coal, which has been also being very supportive, is um, new markets are opening up because China's taking coal out of other markets now that the Australian coal market's close to, the Chinese market's close to Australian coal. So um, a good example is Indian coal. That's up almost 450% this year. It's now the third largest market um, at around 8 million tonnes so far this year. It's got its eyes on Taiwan, which is around 10 million tonnes. And Korea, which is the next, which is our second biggest market, is around uh, 13 million tonnes. So you can see how much of a difference those markets, you know, having coal take China hoovering up coal from other markets has meant our um, um, products have to flow into different markets. And so underlying all this, we've really got this ongoing, strong, robust demand coming out of China right here, right now, offset by ongoing supply shortages from our key commodity producers. And coal's finding new markets, and that's been boosting prices. And I have to admit, the recovery we've seen in coal prices has caught everyone by surprise. Just given, we, we expected it to happen, and we expected prices to, to rally, but just the strength of that rally has been really quite surprising. Thanks, Justin. So the outlook for the commodity prices? Um, so we do expect prices to hold around these sorts of levels for the, for the near term, um, going through towards the end of this year. But by the time we get towards the end of this year, we do expect to see some changes happening. Um, we've already seen China try and do some manipulation or trying to manage the costs of um, commodity prices in the country. Um, the National Development and Reconstruction uh, Commission, which is their sort of market um, controller, they're putting in much tighter controls around what they call malicious speculation. And in particular, they're focusing on people trying to hype prices and hoarding. So they've got some large penalties around that if people are caught doing that. Um, we've also seen some new rules on managing the different indices. And of course, the, in that control, the government's also announced that it's going to be starting to sell from its stockpiles, in particular for copper, aluminium, zinc, in terms of trying to boost supply and try, and those supplies can only be sold to local consumers and producers and can't be hoarded or re-exported. But more importantly, um, more broadly as we come through this year, we do expect supply to modestly respond. Brazil is lifting its output. Australia's been the laggard going so far this year and holding holding back the, the global seaborne trade for iron ore. And we do expect that to lift modestly, but the recovery coming through from Brazil is perhaps more important. And also, and also the supply of, of coal from Australia will lift um, maintenance programs. It's almost over for um, Newcastle and the Moorabbin mine, as I was talking about, is open further. We've also got, um, in terms of looking for the demand side, we're already seeing signs that the market is beginning to peak in, in China in terms of the whole construction investment cycle, in terms of, of driving robust ahead demand. Cement prices are now down through the year and cement, cement an important input in cement is coal prices, which have been, in particularly in China, have been surging with the lack of Australian coal going into the market. And that has been seeing that cement, and so you've got this strong input prices, and yet cement prices are falling now. That's the demand story. Also, what we've been seeing um, is um, ongoing um, price falls, in particularly in rebar prices, steel prices in China. That's hinting towards the uh, demand shock coming or demand weakening coming through there. And right now, demand rebar prices are falling while input prices are still rising, squeezing margins. And in fact, it's quite likely there's quite a few steel mills in, in China that are focusing on rebar production that actually got probably gone into loss making. 
And another demand signal that tells us that we're reaching the sort of maturity in the market is not just the sort of rising inventory, steel inventories we're seeing, but more importantly, the decline in excavator sales. They're now down around 14% of the year. So we've got all these little early signs that the, the market for iron ore and coal is maturing in China, um, which means along with growing supply, we should see price corrections coming through this year. And we are forecasting a moderation in prices, but we should keep it in perspective. Even with the price declines we're talking about, we're still talking about prices being well above cost of production um, here in Australia and elsewhere, and still being very, very healthy margins. So it's a, it's a correction from a peak or from a boom, rather than a negative shock. So we do see commodity prices falling from the end of this year and falling for the next couple of years through the period of time. Thanks, Justin. Uh, Elliot Clark. Elliot, um, I said a few words about our change view on the US, uh, but um, I'd, I'd like you to go into a little more detail on that. So why do why do we expect the FO, the US FOMC to normalise policy from 2022? Thanks, Bill. Yeah, our regular readers will know that uh, following the June FOMC meeting, uh, we materially revised our FOMC profile. We're now forecast to taper in the first half of 22, uh, followed by a first rate hike in December 22, another two hikes in, in 2023. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, Bill, uh, another three in 2024 are taking Fed runs rate to a peak of 1.625%. Uh, th this decision on our part was not so much based on stronger data or expectations that the, uh, the US economy will strengthen materially in the foreseeable future. Uh, rather, what it was really about was the, the shift in, I guess, uh, perspective that we saw uh, from the FOMC at that June meeting. So they went from taking a very risk-focused mindset to quite a constructive, pragmatic approach to policy. Uh, clearly, uh, to their mind, the downside risk related to the virus has diminished materially in, in the last few months, uh, and the FMC believe that the US labor market will be able to uh, achieve full employment in the foreseeable future, most likely by the end of next year. Uh, they are therefore seeking to evoke confidence in the in the recovery uh, and make use of the economy's momentum as it is now uh, to normalise policy with little or no negative consequences to the economy or the labor market. Uh, in that, I suppose it, you know, it's worth mentioning that you know, this is the US sort of outlook as it is now uh, is very, very robust. We're looking for you know, growth north of 6% this year um, and likely seeing something around sort of a 3% mark in your average terms next year and then sort of coming back down to a sort of potential pace in, in 2023. So that is a, a very yeah, promising outlook uh, that they can sort of take advantage of. Uh, now, it is worth noting as well in that that our, our peak Fed funds rate is of 1.625% is well below uh, the FMC's longer run expectation and also the peak in the prior cycle of 2.375%. Um, if inflation sustains at 2%, uh, then yeah, we'll see real short-term uh, interest rates remain negative um, even at the peak of this cycle. Uh, all these perspectives point to financial conditions remaining quite supportive uh, and expectations of growth and employment positive as we roll forward the next couple of years. So yeah, as we can kind of see there, this is very much a, a Goldilocks kind of just right outcome with the, the economy being able to achieve full employment, uh, sustainably having trend growth and inflation at around about 2%, uh, which obviously be a very positive outcome and would justify them normalising policy over that period. Thanks, Elliot. And Elliot, um, given this view, why do we still see the US dollar weakening from March 2022? Yeah, it's obviously, I guess, an interesting view. Uh, I guess the immediate kind of thought would be that if you have higher rates in the US or expectations of that, they should have the, the US dollar strengthening immediately. Uh, but we have to recognise that FX really are a, a relative instrument. Uh, and so what really matters is 
is what's happening uh, in the US versus other countries. And also there are a number of factors, not just policy differentials that we need to take into consideration when we come up with these forecasts. So if we look to the middle of next year, uh, during the taper process, it's, it's important to recognise that the FOMC is only going to be providing support at a lesser rate, not withdrawing it over that period. Uh, all the more the action that they are taking will likely be matched by um, the actions of the ECB, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, uh, which will net out any kind of relative pol policy effect for the US dollar on a DXY basis. Uh, also to that middle of 2022, confidence in the global, re global recovery should continue to build. Uh, reducing support for the US dollar as a safe haven. And over the period, we also see uh, US growth uh, cease to outperform the rest of the developed world as we see a lot of other countries really sort of get uh, that sort of acceleration in their own recoveries. So both of these additional factors really point to a weaker US dollar to March 2022. After this point, while the US won't be leading the world in terms of growth or sentiment anymore, uh, it will be at the front of the pack for policy tightening. So most significant will be the divergence we see between US rates and also then uh, the euro area where we're likely to see uh, the ECB actually remain on hold for the foreseeable future. Um, all the way out to so 2023, they have inflation well below their, their targets. There's no justification from the increasing rates. Uh, so this will then see the US dollar uh, DXY index firm slowly to the end of 2023. And at that point, we're likely to sort of see it sitting around about the current level that is at trading at now, uh, around that sort of 92 figure. Uh, as a final point, it's worth noting that in 2023 and beyond, the structural de development capacity or that sort of story that's overarching uh, develop ma developing markets, particularly Asia, uh, should see those, nation those nations' currencies outperform the DXY trend uh, versus the US dollar. And you know, China's renminbi is really likely to be a standout on this front. Well, thanks, Elliot. That brings to an end our discussions. And as you can hear, we've, uh, there's a whole lot of information packed into this month's market outlook. Uh, from major changes in the interest rate view, from calculations on the peak in the cycles, um, from our maintenance of our positive view on the Aussie dollar, despite what we've seen in, uh, in recent times, uh, our commodity outlook, uh, our discussion on the, on the budgets of the state governments in particular, some early signs around the impact of COVID on, uh, on spending coming through the car tracker index, so lots to read, and of course, we won't be silent between now and next month in the Outlook. You can see lots of uh, uh, weekly and, and daily uh, publications coming from the group in terms of this uh, uh, tracking and predicting this, uh, this fascinating stage in the economic cycle. So thank you very much.